open the Word together, um, I would like to make a confession. Um, I've been preaching for 33 years. I started in 1978, and almost every Sunday um, I have preached at least two sermons uh, on all of those occasions. And um, you need to know that before I get up and preach, I am terrified. I'm absolutely scared to death. I feel inadequate, and I feel um, plastic, and I feel uninspired, and I feel like I have nothing to say. And uh, this is not something that happens once in a while. This is something that happens every Sunday. Sherry still doesn't understand it. I'm not sure I fully understand it, but I do know this. Without the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ, with the, without the adequacy of my Heavenly Father, I am nothing. And I have nothing to say, and I have no ability to inspire you or direct you or call you to a different kind of life. With the power of God, all of that changes. So with that in mind, and, and, and also that's just a reminder for you to pray for me, because um, I've learned to look uh, relaxed on the stage, but that's a learned behavior. <laughs> that's not how my insides feel. But uh, I've, I, I would, uh, I'll cover your prayers as I uh, preach uh, this morning. So with uh, great faith and with receptivity, would you please uh, extend your hands? And uh, with this uh, physical motion, identify the fact that you are ready to receive the Word of God. Father, uh, this is your Word. And my prayer is that uh, this Word, in all of its truth and authenticity, would be proclaimed. Lord, I'm like the little boy with the loaves and fishes. I have almost nothing to give, but the little bit I have to give, I give to you. And I invite you to blow your spirit into that word and increase its effectiveness and its power and its life and do the work among my people, among your people, that they might receive the word, that they might be filled with grace, that they might be convicted of their sin, that they might be called to a new and a different life. That is my prayer for each and every one of us. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Thank you very much. So this morning we are, uh, this week and next week, we are finishing this uh, eight-week series that we have uh, done on facing your fears. And I just want <clears throat> to say at the outset that um, I'm very grateful uh, when you let me know whether a message or a series has spoken to you. And you have done that. And uh, this uh, series has been very impactful for many of you. And I want to thank you for that. And also just extend once again that uh, that great and deep desire of mine that um, the Word of God is full of treasures, of help in everyday life. And we all know that uh, we don't want to live by fear, right? And because perfect love casts out fear, we want to experience that perfect love of Jesus. And that's what this series on facing your fears has been about. Today, we're talking about facing your fear of inadequacy. I don't think I'm the only one that when you have to do something important, that you don't feel inadequate, that you don't feel insufficient. But that certainly 
uh, the way I feel each and every Sunday morning. Well, I want to begin by telling you of an article in a magazine that I read in that theological, uh, truth-filled magazine called, called Cosmopolitan Magazine. Now, I don't read that regularly. Once in a while, I hear about an article online, and I go and, and check that out. But um, this bastion of truth and theological insight, uh, Cosmo, Cosmo uh, is uh, a few years ago ran an article about the profile of a happy person. Now, where they got their information for this profile was they polled their readers, and I'm not going to ask you how many of you are readers of Cosmopolitan Magazine, but they polled their readers and asked them to give them input into what a truly happy person looks like. So this was a accumulation of that, and they put it into a paragraph, and this is Cosmopolitan's definition of a truly happy person, and I quote, they enjoy other people. Okay, that's a good start, right? They enjoy other people, but are not self-sacrificing. They refuse to participate in any negative feelings or emotions. They have a sense of accomplishment based on their own self-sufficiency. They always look out for number one, end quote. Isn't that, doesn't that just make you just filled with nausea? I mean, joy. It's... Uh, I mean, how's that for the pursuit of happiness? It's, you know, the triumvirate of, uh, instead of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's me, myself, and I. You know, that's what really matters. What's fascinating to me about this definition, it is the complete polar opposite of the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, in the Beatitudes especially. In the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about what a happy person is. Here's what Jesus says about being happy. He said, you are happy when you are poor in spirit. Now, the word poor in spirit means that literally you are broken over the, the, the recognition of your own sin. In other words, your heart is broken that you continually do the wrong thing. You continually hurt other people. You continually hurt the heart of God. And you are broken over that. And Jesus said, you're a happy person when you're broken in your spirit. Isn't that amazing? A little bit different than Cosmo, right? Or, Jesus said, happy are those who are meek. Okay, now meek is not Casper Milk Toast. Meek is power under control, but it's power that you have under the control of God. That is meekness. And he goes on, Jesus goes on and says that blessed are those or happy are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Not who hunger and thirst after accomplishments and, and accolades and uh, accumulations, but someone who is hungering and thirsting after Jesus. This is a happy person according to Jesus. These are truly happy people when they recognize their insufficiency. What a profound contrast. The world says, happy are the self-sufficient. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in what? In weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Now, I think, I think I know most of you pretty well, and some of the newer people I don't, but... Most of us don't have the problem of feeling too sufficient. <laughs> I think most of us are, what my confession was about this morning, is feeling not sufficient enough, not adequate to the task. Uh, just recognizing that I don't have what it takes. I spent, I was sharing with a new couple yesterday 
that I spent the first uh, 20 years of my ministry trying to convince myself and other people that I was better than I actually was. Constantly propping up my image. Constantly trying to project uh, an aura of, not perfection, but really, really good. And by the way, when, if you're doing that, it is exhausting. You know, you just got to quit because it is exhausting to constantly prop up your image because the reality is right there and your wife knows it. But, but everyone else, you know, you keep propping up the image. We all recognize that we are inadequate. For instance, do you know anybody who has this thing called marriage down pat? I, I don't. I mean, Sherry and I have a, an amazing marriage. We've been married for 44 years, but I still irritate her to no end, often. And uh, in fact, <laughs> we go shopping, and Lord help me when that happens, uh, anytime that happens. But we go shopping because Sherry thinks it's a social uh, thing. We get to do it together. We hold hands and skip down the aisle of, of Chandler Mall. Uh, so her goal is socialization and touching everything in the store. Okay, that's her goal. She doesn't buy much, but she touches everything. And my goal is like a hunter. I'm in there, I look for my prey, I capture it, and I bag it, and I get out of there as fast as possible. So how, how is it that we ever think that we have this thing called marriage wired? We don't. How about this? Um, do you know anybody who isn't feeling stress at work? I mean, that's not even normal to not feel stress at work. Or how about this? Do you know anybody who has the, the Christian life mastered? We no longer struggle with temptation. I mean, we have a sign out front that says no perf perfect people allowed. It's kind of a, a funny come on is the idea of it, but it's, abs it's absolutely true. <laughs> It's true of your lead pastor, it's true of all of your other pastors, it's true of all your elders, it's true of all of your members and all of your regular attenders, and it's true of all the people that just come once in a while. It is true. We are imperfect. We were, are not all sufficient. We are inadequate. Or how about this? Do you know of anybody who has this parenting thing down to a science? I mean, come on. We have, we're clueless. Uh, if you have a baby... Uh, you realize uh, that it's so fun to have a baby, and we have these new babies in our church, and it's wonderful. But let's see, Rebecca Mellish, it's her first baby, but the others are uh, second, third babies and like that. By the time you have a second, third baby, you realize that you have no clue what you're doing as a parent. Zero. Because first baby, you've read a thousand books, and you do everything right. You have a perfect baby and everything. By the second time the second one comes around, you are clueless. Now, there's only one person that I know of that, that knew exactly what you should do in parenting, and it was an 18-year-old. An 18-year-old, never been a father, never even been married, but this 18-year-old had an older sister who had a baby, and because he read a couple of books, he thought he had all the answers for his older sister. Now, that 18-year-old was me. I thought I knew everything about parenting until I had kids, and then I realized I had absolutely nothing. All of us knows what it feels like to be inadequate because we are. Inadequacy. We all face it, but how do we deal with it? How do we face the fear that we don't have what it takes to be a good parent, to be a good Christian, to be a good employee, a good spouse, a good leader? This morning I would like to offer you some biblical insights on how to face the fear of inadequacy. Now we're going to look at two passages particularly, so you might want to open up your Bibles if you have them, or your smartphones, iPads, whatever. Open them up. We're going to look at two passages, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, a couple of verses there, and John chapter 15. And in these two passages, we are going to discover some amazing insights from God's Word about what it means 
to not be afraid of inadequacy. And the first uh, biblical insight is this. I need to admit my inadequacy and affirm God's sufficiency. Let me say that again. I need to admit my inadequacy and affirm God's sufficiency. Too many people try to deny the obvious, and that is that we are insufficient, we are inadequate to live life to its fullest, to have everything go our way. We pretend to be super dad or super mom or super grandpa or super employee or even worse yet, we try to project this super Christian kind of image. That's a failure every time. Believe me, I tried that for 20 years. Evaluate the following statements with me. True or false, okay? Now don't say it out loud, but just keep it in your own head whether you think these statements are true or false. The first one is this. God helps those who help themselves. Okay, think in your head, true or false. Somebody after first service said, well, isn't that verse in the Bible? I said, ah, no, that's not a verse in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. The second statement is this. If it's going to be, it's up to me. Okay, think, true or false. Third question, or third statement, you can if you think you can. True or false. Now, from my perspective, and again, these are somewhat subjective and you could differ with me on this. From my perspective, all three of those statements are absolutely false. And they're false because they're laced with lies. Now, they're all completely lie, but they're laced with lies and innuendos and assumptions. They all lead to a kind of a self-reliant or self-sufficient attitude that I've got everything under control. I shared with this couple yesterday that uh, the time in my life when I realized I didn't have anything in control was when our son Tyler died. Okay, I'd always, before that, I'd always been able to control my atmosphere, my, myself, seemingly, my family, my church. You know, I kind of, I could move everything and, you know, everything looked good and looked healthy and kind of propped up the image. But when Tyler died, I lost all ability to recognize that I had no control over my life, over my future, over my family, over me. I was in completely inadequate and completely insufficient. Here's the truth. I don't have what it takes to make it in life, and neither do you. I am inadequate. If it's going to be, it's not entirely up to me. Let me put it another way. This may sound weird. Inadequacy is a gift. Inadequacy is a gift. Let me explain that. So in the Old Testament, God gave us laws. And the laws basically weren't so that we could be saved. Uh, laws cannot save you. Obedience to laws can never save anyone. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But God says, okay, you need some guidelines because you guys, human race, you guys are idiots. And you're always bumping into each other and you're always killing each other and doing stupid things. So I'm going to give you some laws to keep you out of trouble. Okay, that's what the laws are about. Here's the problem. And from those 10 laws, the 10 commandments, came 600 other laws. And from those came about 60,000 other laws try to explain the laws to explain the laws. So you know how that goes. And so everybody's going, oh man, how can I do all this? And so what the law does is it tells you a couple of things. And uh, Paul said in Galatians that the law is a teacher or a mentor or a schoolmaster. Okay? So the law is a school. What, is he, what did Paul mean? The law is a schoolmaster. Well, a schoolmaster is always pointing you to the truth. Here's the truth. Here's where you can find the truth. Uh, two plus two equals four, and the law is always pointing you to the truth. And so, or the teacher is always pointing you to the truth. So that's what the law does. The law says two things. Number one, the law is good, but you can't keep it. 
And no, there's not six commandments. Some of you are thinking, I can keep six commandments. Of course you can. You can't keep ten. Nobody ever has except Jesus. So number one, the first thing the law does is it points to the fact that you can't keep the law. You can't. Only one could. The one who did was Jesus. And so it points to him. The only one kept the law, Jesus Christ kept the law. And the other thing the law points us to is this idea, this sense that we are completely dependent on God. I can't do this on my own. I can't do this on my own. So inadequacy is a gift. Here's the truth. I don't have what it takes. And I know that I am inadequate. And if it's going to be, it's not entirely up to me. So uh, this idea of inadequacy, um, we have a problem with ego. And when I say we, I'm talking about human beings in general. Uh, otherwise, if, if we don't recognize our inability to control our lives completely, uh, we have this ego the size of Texas. And let me tell you what ego stands for. Ego stands for edging God out, right? I mean, you all know that. You know that instinctively. When I'm about me, when I'm about me, myself, when I'm a Cosmo man, right? <laughs> when you're a Cosmo girl, uh, when you're one of those, you're constantly filled with ego, edging God out. So the Apostle Paul learned about that. The same guy that the, said the law was a schoolmaster, it points to the fact that we can't keep the law, and it does point to Jesus. The same Paul said, had this situation. He was a Christ servant, and he was going through Asia Minor, preaching the good news of Jesus and his reconciling power. It was awesome. But he had a physical ailment. He called it a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. Theologians have conjectured it's epilepsy or a grumpy wife or bad eyesight. I don't know. It's, it's something. But uh, anyway, he had this, this, this problem, this physical problem that he couldn't, and he said, God, three times he prayed, God, would you take this away? If you take this away, I'll be a better servant. Uh, maybe I'll even go to Europe with the gospel, not just Asia, right? I'll just really do it all. So God, you really need me to be free from this. Does that sound familiar, by the way? Your prayers to God. God, you'd really be better off if you would take care of this thing that I have, this problem I have. And, and he, he, was, he was saying to God, you need to take this away from me because I'll be a better servant. And, and here's what God said to him. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul discovered, he didn't know it for a long time, because remember, Paul was this very capable, educated leader type uh, he was this powerful A type A guy, always in charge. You know, he walks into a room, the room knows who's in charge. He was that kind of guy. But Paul depended so much on his own sufficiency, and this was an area of his life, this physical ailment. By the way, you have to define what your area of life is, what you think you have control over. This area of life he wanted God to fix, and God said, no, listen, you are stronger when you are weak. You are more sufficient when you are insufficient. You are more adequate when you have my adequacy instead of your own. My grace is sufficient for you in all things. So if you have this weakness, whether it's a temptation, a physical ailment, a personality trait, if there's this weakness in you, instead of always trying to fix yourself, 
Remember, we can't fix ourselves. We've tried so much. Instead of trying to fix yourself, you say, Lord, I surrender this to you. I give you my life. I give you my weakness. And in your weakness, he makes it strong. Isn't that beautiful? Matthew 5, 3, we read these words. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Happy is the one who falls on the altar in need of grace. You remember that a few weeks ago, a young man, Brian, fell on the altar. Happy is the man who falls on the altar and says, my only hope is Jesus. Do you know what it means to be poor in spirit? That phrase is kind of odd. Let me tell you what it means to be poor. The word poor is technos, and the word poor means this. Uh, Poor does not mean, there's different levels of poor in the Greek language. One level of poor is, I don't have any resources. I have no money, I have no car, no chariot, no house, okay. That's, that's one level of poor. This word technos is much deeper and more profound than that poor. This poor means I not only have no resources, I have nothing. I don't have the ability to ask for it. I don't have the ability to beg for it. That is a person who is poor in spirit. They recognize they have no self-sufficiency, no adequacy of their own to redeem their sin, to take care of their brokenness, but only God does. Happy are the poor in spirit. So, um, Brian, Ryan didn't tell you, he, did, he told the first service uh, that in Minnesota this morning, it was 12 degrees. Okay, I'm so thankful I'm in Chandler and not, not Minnesota, 12 degrees. So, uh, the winter of, or actually the fall of 1991, Bruce and Stacy, you remember this, fall of 1991, on Halloween, 28 and a half inches of snow, okay? And then followed up less than a month later on Thanksgiving, another 18 inches of snow. Welcome to Minnesota, Dwayne and Sherry. It was quite a welcome. And so I'm out there shoveling this snow along with my 15-year-old son, Nathan, who says, Dad, we got to buy a snow thrower. And naturally, I didn't buy one because I'm cheap, and I didn't buy one until he went away to college and I was on my own. But uh, so I'm shoveling snow. And Sherry says, honey, our neighbor has this great snow thrower. Why don't you go and ask him for help? And I said, you know, are you kidding? You know, who needs help with that? So Nathan and dad said, you should go ask him. Nope, we're going to do this. And Sherry kept kind of saying, why don't you ask him or I'll ask him for it. Finally, I said, okay, I can't do this. It's going to take me all day. I went over and I asked my neighbor. And he said, oh, I'd, I'd be happy to help you. He said, and, and you can borrow it, but instead of that, I've got a better idea. Let me do it. I already know how to do it. Okay, and so he came over, and in like 30 minutes, he took 28 and a half inches of snow off of our driveway. There's big piles on the side, and then he did it again in Thanksgiving. And I thought, what an amazing friend that is. Well, here's this: God is like that neighbor of mine. He's got what you need, and he's willing to share it, and he's willing to do the work. If we simply ask him, if we recognize, I can't do this alone. I need help. Lord Jesus, you are my only hope. God is like that neighbor. Why do we use the all-powerful, all-wise God like a pinch hitter? You know, like, okay, at the last minute, I can't figure this out. I'm going to go and pray. Because the power to live the Christian life is all there. Not adequately, but abundantly when we were in Christ Jesus. The power to live a, a, a... A life where we can break free from addiction is there if we simply ask. 
The power to get over a painful memory or the power to forgive someone who has hurt us. The wisdom to deal with a difficult situation. The insight and strength to be a good mom or dad or grandparent or partner. The only thing getting in the way of our oversized is our oversized ego, which is edging God out. You want to face your fear of inadequacy? Then accept this gift that you are inadequate, but God is not. God is all-sufficient all adequate, and he's constantly telling us as his children, listen, I love you. I know you can't navigate everything on your own. I've given you a lot, a lot of gifts and abilities, and you're doing great, but I know you can't do this all alone. I am here. I love you. I care about you. Let me help. Lord Jesus, you are my only help, and that's when we discover our adequacy in Christ Jesus. There's another insight on how to face our fear of inadequacy, and it's this. I need to abide in Christ and allow his power to flow through me. I need to abide in Christ and allow his power to flow through me. I mean, God is this amazing friend. He is a lover. He is our husband, our wife, our son. He is the most important relationship in our life. And his, basically what he's saying is, listen, you can borrow my snow thrower anytime you want. In fact, you don't even have to borrow it. I'll do the work. I will do the, allow my power to flow through you. So that brings us to our next passage, John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. And in this passage, you will discover the key to connecting to God's power. Okay, how do I get that snow thrower? And how do I get my neighbor to actually take care of my driveway? Here's the answer to that question that I know you've all been asking, those of us who live in Arizona, right? We've been asking that question. Here it is, verses 4 and 5 of John 15. Remain in me. In some versions it says abide. I like the word abide because abide means to dwell in, to live in, to settle down into. Remain in me, Jesus is speaking, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, Jesus said. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We are to remain, to abide, to settle down into Jesus so that the vine is feeding us as branches. The vine is feeding us this, this life source, uh, this sap, this energy from Jesus is flowing through us and that powers through. So we go from being inadequate and insufficient to having the adequacy of Christ and the sufficiency, the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ when we abide in him. Now, how do you bear fruit? How do you do this? I mean, do you close your eyes and, and think fruity thoughts? I, I don't think that's it. Or do you take a deep breath and you push really hard and say, fruit, fruit, fruit. Now, that doesn't work. Or maybe you read how to bear fruit in three easy steps. No, no. A branch bears fruit if it is staying connected to the vine. It's that simple. So I have here uh, some of my wife's uh, uh, kitchen shears, okay? Uh, you all have them in your home. And uh, my wife uses these to cut up onions and cut up lettuce and cut up stuff like that. What she doesn't know is that when she's not looking, I use it to cut up other stuff. But uh, it always ends up back in the kitchen where it belongs. And what this, this 
scissors example of our kind of um, union with Christ. So this part is Jesus, this part is me, and we're connected, we're vitally connected, um, receiving life from each other. It's real. It's and together we have this amazing capacity to get things done and to do things and to live our life well and to, to do what God has created us to do, right? To be scissors, right? But as soon as you take this pin out, I'm not going to do it because I'll get in trouble. As soon as you take this pin out and you have these two separate things, it becomes useless for what it was intended for. When you disconnect yourself from Jesus Christ, you have certainly gifts and abilities and talents, but you can become useless in trying to do the things that God has called you to do, to bear witness for the love of Jesus and all the things that you were purposed, that you were created to do. We need to be vitally connected, joined with Jesus Christ. Without Christ, we do nothing. Philippians 4.13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Our sufficiency is in Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, you always like some practical uh, ideas, so let me give you a couple of practical things that, uh, that this looks like. Two phrases, you can write them down in your sermon notes, two phrases to practically live out this uh, being sufficient in Christ. Number one, you need to hang out, and number two, you need to hand over, okay? Just modern language, hang out, and hang, hand over. Hanging out is abiding, connecting with Christ. And all that that implies. You, you open your Bible, you read it, you let the Word of God speak to you. Uh, you pray. You have this conversation with God. You meet in a community of faith like us and you're connected in small groups and you're doing ministry and you're serving and you're bearing witness. All of these things that you were purposed to do, you're doing because you are connected to the vine. You're hanging out with Jesus. And the other thing, though, is hand over. That's what we do with our inadequacies. We hand them over to Jesus. I can't do this. We hand them over. So I love the story of, in Matthew, uh, or in Matthew chapter 6, or excuse me, John chapter 6, about the feeding of the 5,000. You know, those of you who have been around the church know the story. So uh, Jesus had been teaching all day, Sermon on the Mount, great crowd of people gathered around uh, 5,000 at least. We know there's at least, as the text says that, but it could have been many more because in those days they just counted the men. So a large group of people on this mountainside. It's getting to the end of the day. There's no food there. They haven't had anything to eat all day. The crowd's getting restless, and the disciples come to Jesus and say, what are we going to do about this? We don't know what we should do. And uh, Jesus said, well, what do you think we should do? You know, he was always asking those annoying questions, you know, right back at you. What do you think we should do? Well, Philip, being Philip, uh, he gets out his calculator and he figures that it would take about eight months' salary to get enough Taco Bell tacos to feed everybody. Not, can't, can't, can't do it. We can't do that. He just reports to Jesus, there's no way it'll happen. Andrew, a little bit more subjective, a little bit more free with his faith. Andrew digs a little deeper. He says, let's see if I can dig up some food, find some food and maybe we can share it. So he finds this little boy little boy, maybe an eight-year-old boy, we don't know how old he was, little boy, he had his sack lunch, right? So he had five little rolls and two fish, and that was his lunch for the day. And the little boy said, well, I'll help out, you know, if you need to feed people. He's apparently a really cool little kid, and he said, here, take my food. And so, so Andrew comes and says, this is what we got. We can't, we can't feed anybody with this. This is ridiculous. It's, this kid is just a kid. He, he's offering this, but it means nothing to us. And Jesus said, well, wait a minute. Uh, let's take that gift and, um, and start handing out food to people. And so they did, and 
You know the story. When they were done, they gathered baskets and baskets filled with leftovers. Here's the message that you all know clearly, and it's this. When you give God the very little bit that you have, (laughs) you give him your gifts and talents and abilities as small or as large as they are, and you say, in the hands of the Savior, this can be turned into a miracle. Lord, I give you my intelligence, not that great. I give you my body. I give you my hopes, my dreams, my family, my wife, my children, my grandchildren. I give you my home, my car, my finances. I give you everything. And God takes all of those things as meager and as inadequate and as insufficient as all of that is. God takes all of those and he creates a miracle. I love that story. God promises that if you abide in me, and allow your power to fl- uh, my power to flow through you, everything will change. Our little becomes a miracle in the hands of our Father. First John 4.4 4 says this, Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. You may be inadequate as I am, but the God who lives within you is completely adequate, all-sufficient, full of glory and grace. And speaking of grace, the last biblical insight in facing our inadequacies is simply this. I need to accept God's amazing grace. I need to accept God's amazing grace. In spite of your inadequacies, in spite of your failures, in spite of your sins, when you look up and say, Lord Jesus, my only hope is you, When you see your only hope is that matchless grace of God, then you are in a position to be forgiven, redeemed, cleansed, embraced by the one who is entirely sufficient. That's someone who is weak. God says, I will make strong. My strength will be seen in their lives. 150 years ago in the Old South, um, the slaves who had been enslaved for 200 years on, this, on the soil of the United States, the slaves had a phrase that they said anytime one of their own family or one of their friends, one of their fellow slaves, gave their heart and their life to Jesus. By the way, these people, the only thing they had was God. They had no kindness or tenderness or position or loyalty. They had nothing else. They had no money. They had nothing. They had no freedom. The only thing they had was God. And when one of their own came to Christ, here's what they would say about that person, that that person was seized by the power of a great affection. Isn't that beautiful? Can you imagine some of these uneducated uh, uh, folks that were enslaved for 200 years, and when someone would come to Christ, they would say, I have been, I have been seized by the power of a great affection. These words describe both the initiative of God and the explosion in the heart of an individual who says, here, take my loaves and fishes. Take my hands, my inadequacy, my insufficiency. Take the little I have and make them something that will change the world. So brothers and sisters, this morning, if you are broken, if you recognize your inadequacy, if you are truly hungry and thirsty, for, for, for something that will satisfy your soul, if you want forgiveness and mercy, if you want to be seized by the power of a great affection, 
then you want God's amazing grace. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, as we have looked at your word and, and looked at this truth that you, you told Paul so long ago that you tell us today, is that we're always trying to figure things out and do things on our own power and we can't understand why we have this ailment or this problem. Or, but you always come to us and you say the same thing. Listen, listen very carefully. My grace is sufficient for you. Sufficient means it's all you need. It means there's nothing else that you need to add to it to make it amazing. My grace is sufficient for you because in your weakness, the world will see my strength. Father, that's my prayer for my brothers and sisters here today that they would experience the power of a great affection, the redeeming power of a love that is so great that they will recognize that their small gifts, their offerings can be given to you and from that, you will take that, and you will make a miracle. And for those things, Father, we thank you and praise you. And we ask these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and all of God's people said together, amen. Amen. Thank you.